So this morning, we are going to be talking about the gifts of healings. So I know immediately there's already some skepticism. I know immediately as we bring up this topic, there's already a lot of misunderstanding because some of you have been personally hurt by charlatans who claim to have healed you or took money from your family at some kind of healing rally and you weren't actually healed. Some of you have lost family members who in their dying moments genuinely believed that miraculous healing was on its way. And many of you were raised in a church that taught that the miraculous gifts ceased in the first century. And you might even think, man, if this church really believes that the gifts of healing is a, is a, is a real gift and it's in operation today, then why doesn't somebody who have it go down to Cook's to the cancer uh, ward and clear out the part of the building? Do you get that irritation and that sense of just confusion about this gift? It's a coin flip, really, between healing and tongues as to which spiritual gift is the most controversial. So I think this morning, God has given us a massive opportunity for clarity. Clarity around precise biblical teaching. Clarity around our distinctives here as a church and possibly clarity around what God might have for this church. So I'm thankful for this opportunity. God is not afraid of our questions or our concerns or our misunderstanding. He's ready for us to ask. And Scripture is actually really not murky on this gift. It's quite clear. So look with me to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to read 4 through 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all these distributing to each person as he wills. So this morning, we really have three options, which are going to be up on the screen behind me, as we think about the spiritual gift of healing. We really only have three. Number one, it's always God's will to heal everyone during their life on earth. Two, the miraculous gifts we see in the Bible stopped after the apostles died. Or three, there is no such thing as the gift of healing. There are gifts of healing subject to the sovereign will of God. So we're going to start with number one. Let's put number one up on the screen. Be weary of anyone who claims that it's always God's will to heal. Because if that's true, then when someone is prayed for and they don't experience healing, somehow they were the reason that they were not healed. Now, this view was popularized in the 20th century by faith healing evangelists, and they made a fortune 
off of their crusades where people would come and they would be sick. They wouldn't be healed and they would blame the sick person and say, come back the next night with another offering and I'll try to heal you again if you have more faith. This view puts all the pressure on the person. You have to believe you'll be healed for God to heal you. You need more faith. You need the right kind of faith. You have to have a doubt-free faith. You have unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with before you're healed. Now, I want to stop here and be very clear. The churches and the teachers who preach this are so attractive to so many people because they speak an element of truth. There is a connection between faith and healing. There is a connection between sin and healing. And God's heart is always merciful and compassionate towards his people. Let's, let's hear Jesus' own words. So I'm just going to go through the New Testament, really, the Gospels. Here, Matthew 9, 22. Jesus turned and saw her and said, Have courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. Mark 2. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof, they dug through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark 10, 52, Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Luke 17, then Jesus said, Were not ten lepers cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. And then in the book of Acts, Acts 3.16, by faith in his name, in Jesus' name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of you all. And then in James 5, which we'll be in in a little while in our James series, is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So what do we do with all of this? If it's always God's will to heal here on earth, then is our faith like the substance, the thing that unlocks the healing? Maybe you've heard that before. The first thing we have to do is be careful to not give more weight to faith and healing connected than the New Testament does itself. That's the first thing we need to do. But we also have to just soberly read these passages and realize that sometimes healing does not occur because of the kind of faith that God delights to honor. Now, this does not mean that every time a person isn't healed is because of defective faith or if they had a more doubt-free faith that healing would inevitably happen, but it does mean that faith is very important. I don't know how we couldn't take that away from all the texts that I just read from Jesus' own mouth as he said things to people as he healed them. Sam Storms is going to help us think through this connection between faith and healing. He says this, so why did Jesus emphasize faith? Neither he nor his father really need it. They could have orchestrated life in such a way that something other than faith be the condition on which they would heal. They are not hampered or hindered 
by the faithlessness or the prayerlessness of the sick person or those who pray for his or her healing. Well, I think the reason is this. Faith glorifies God. Faith points us away from ourselves to him. Faith turns us away from our own power and our own resources to his. Faith says, Lord, I am nothing, but you are everything, so I entrust myself to your care. I cling to you alone. Your confi- my confidence is in your word and your character no matter what happens. Now, listen carefully here to this part. He says, faith is not a weapon by which we demand things from God or put him in subjection to us. Real biblical faith is an act of self-denial. Faith is a renunciation of one's ability to do anything and a confession that God can do everything. So faith derives its power not from the spiritual energy of the person who believes, but from the supernatural efficacy of the person who is believed, God. It's not faith's act, but it's object that accounts for the miraculous. That's helpful. To paraphrase another text in Scripture, God opposes the proud, but he delights to heal the humble. He doesn't always heal the humble, but he always opposes the proud. So if you see faith in the way the Bible sees it as a real act of self-denial, where you throw yourself onto the Lord for everything, you, you turn truly away from your resources and all that you think you can do, and you rely solely upon him. That's the posture of the heart of the people who we see healed in Scripture. Jack Deere says in his book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, don't ever try to talk God into healing someone because the sick person deserves it. No one is healed because they deserve it. We're only healed because of the goodness of the Son expressed in his sacrifice for us. We see in the book of Philippians healing called a divine mercy, which means that we should never see it as something we can claim or something that we have a right to. There's no place in the life of this church or in your personal life for people that are part of the Word of Faith movement or the health and wealth gospel. There's no place for them. They're presumptuous as far as the will of God, and they see healing as a formula that man can master to manipulate God, and it's unbiblical. So we can't platform those people. We must flee from them. If you think I'm being harsh, think about how uncomfortable you are even talking about healing. Primarily, it's because of the charlatans who have abused a legitimate spiritual gift made money off of it, and made a mockery of it in the world, where we can't even biblically correctly think about the spiritual gifts because of these men and women who are all over the television and internet now. They say things like healing is a payment of the debt. In Isaiah 53, by his stripes you are healed. That is not about physical healing. It's a part of its component. That primarily is healing, healed from our sinful nature. We're made new. We're made righteous in the sight of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Healing is not a payment of a debt owed to believers. God doesn't owe us healing. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. 
I believe we should have faith for healing, but faith in who God is and what he can do is very different than a presumption of an alleged right that we have to name it and claim it as Christians. It's false doctrine. So let's put perspective one on the screen if it's not still there. The real problem with number one is wicked as it is that it places all the pressure on the person. That's a huge problem. But the real problem with this view is the assumption of God's will in every situation. This is where this perspective completely falls apart. Because there are sick people in the New Testament who are never healed. There are sick apostles in the New Testament who are never healed. We just simply can't conclude that it's always God's will to heal in every situation. Paul wielded incredible, miraculous gifts during his ministry. But at one point, he wrote Timothy, his beloved son in the faith who he cherished. He said, you have stomach issues? Drink wine. (laughs) So Paul clearly could not heal Timothy in that moment. There's lingering illnesses all throughout the New Testament. Ephroditus, Trophimus, and then Paul himself had a thorn, had an unexplained medical illness that he begged God to take away, that he had other people pray for him, and God said no. This compels us to view this gift as subject to the will of God, not the will of people. And this part of perspective number one, assuming God's will in every situation, is particularly wicked to me because I've seen the nasty side effects of it of assuming that God always wants to heal as we watch someone wither away. And to get told repeatedly there's something defective in the person's faith who's praying. That's why they're not healed. The reality is every sickness is not attached to evil or unbelief. Every sickness is not attached to evil or unbelief. There is mysterious suffering in this world, not God, it's mysterious to God, but it's mysterious to us. And we will not understand it until we are in the presence of Jesus after death. And there's also providential suffering. What does that mean? That God often uses sickness for our eternal good. As I said earlier, God's heart is always compassionate and merciful towards his people, always. But what the faith healer misses and what is plainly taught in Scripture is that sometimes the most merciful and compassionate thing God can do is afflict us so that we look more like Jesus. Sometimes the most compassionate and merciful thing God can do is break us so that we are more dependent on him to grow our faith, to grow us in holiness, to walk us down the road of sanctification. God is all about his glory, and he's all about his people's eternal good, not necessarily earthly comfort, but eternal good. So was sickness part of the original design of creation? No. Does God use it? Absolutely. He uses death too. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but if you are a born again believer, death is the vehicle that takes you where you want to go. Death serves 
the Christian. It has no real power over us because Jesus put death to death. He's victorious over sin and death completely. So Jesus has taken our filthy rags and given us his righteous robe, and that's all we need in this life. Because when the Father looks at us, he sees not our sin and not our rebellion and not our brokenness, but he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. And there's a promise in Scripture for everyone in this room that you can completely bank on, that everyone who belongs to Jesus in this room will be healed in eternity. Promised, Revelation 21.4, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. This life is a vapor, but in eternity you will be healed if you belong to Jesus. So I think we can confidently say that perspective one is incomplete and arrogant in the assumption of God's will in every situation. So let's look at perspective two. Perspective two, the miraculous gifts we see in the Bible stopped after the apostles died. So (laughs) this could fill eight weeks, and I've got like six minutes. So bear with me. I'm going to make a very quick case for the fact that we are continuationists here at Grace Church. And if you are a cessationist, meaning that you believe this statement on the screen behind us, you are welcome here even as a member. But know that we as your pastors are continuationists, and we lead the church in that, meaning we believe that all the miraculous gifts are still in operation today and still build up the church and still edify the body. So why be a continuationist? If you were uh, raised in a church that said, oh, these gifts ended when the apostles died, I'm going to give you two quick reasons. One, a plain reading of the New Testament, just, just reading the New Testament without any assumption of doctrine other than what's in the text. And two, the consistent witness of the miraculous in church history. So start with one, a plain reading of the New Testament. So if you read the book of Acts, beginning with Pentecost, every time the Spirit is poured out on new believers, they experience the miraculous gifts. So what does that mean? Christians in Rome, Corinth, Samaria, Caesarea, Antioch, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Galatia, all experience the miraculous and revelatory gifts. And this is really important. The miraculous gifts are not restricted to the apostles. You see regular people, men and women, young and old, all across the Roman Empire in the New Testament, experiencing and enjoying the charismatic gifts, the miraculous gifts. There are so many people other than the apostles who experience these gifts in the New Testament. Uh, 70 who were commissioned in Luke 10, 108 people gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, Stephen, Philip, Ananias, church members in Antioch, anonymous converts in Ephesus, women in Caesarea, unnamed brethren in Galatians 3.5, believers in Rome, believers in Corinth, Christians in Thessalonica. It's really difficult to imagine the New Testament authors being any more clear about what new covenant Christianity is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be spirit filled. It's supposed to be a walk with the Spirit being molded into the image of Jesus day to day with your brothers and sisters. That's what's plainly taught in the New Testament. Um, if we look at option two, uh, reason two, which is the historical witness 
of the miraculous throughout church history, I recommend Jack Deere's book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. He does a massive amount of scholarly work listing, going through all of church history. Uh, It's remarkable to see how many miraculous outpourings of the Spirit have happened from Pentecost all the way to our modern day. So, one of the most incredible witnesses to the early church seeing the miraculous is the fact that the first through the fifth centuries, all the church fathers, all of them, recounted miraculous gifts in their congregations. So these are the men who labored by the Spirit's power to form the doctrine of the early church using the New Testament, okay? These are the men who coined the term Trinity and sanctification and all the thing, all the words that we use now. They got heretics out of their midst and decided based on the New Testament that Jesus is fully God and fully man. All the early church councils were done by these men and in their congregations, they all experienced miraculous gifts. Augustine, the church father that 1,300 years later inspired the Reformation when Calvin and Luther rediscovered the church fathers, he claimed to be a cessationist. And then in his last book he ever wrote, he wrote this, but what I say should not be understood as though no miracles should be believed to be performed nowadays in Christ's name. For I myself, when I was writing this very book, knew a blind man who had been given his sight in the name of Jesus. I know of some other miracles as well, So many of them occur, even in these times, that we would be unable either to be aware of them all or to number those of which we are aware. That's Augustine. If we fast forward 1,300 years, 1,400 years to Charles Spurgeon, the late 19th century preacher who Ryan and I try and emulate about once a year with our beard length. Anytime you see us growing it out, we're trying to Spurgeonize this church. But we love him, and we quote him all the time. And a lot of people think he is a cessationist, but it's amazing if you read some of his letters. At a Monday morning prayer meeting, he said a man, young man came in with white gloves on, and in the middle of his message, he pointed at him and said, son, you stole those gloves. And later on, after the message, he came into Spurgeon's office and laid him on his desk and said, please don't tell my employer. It's the first time I ever stole from him. And then he says later in a letter, I could tell you as many as a dozen cases in which I pointed at somebody in the church without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, you have to come and see a preacher who told me all the things I ever did, and beyond a doubt, he was sent of God to my soul, or else he could not have described me so exactly. Time prevents me from going through all the rest of church history. You need to read Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. It's a wonderful book. When you combine a plain reading of the New Testament with the historical witness, I think you have a pretty strong case that the miraculous gifts are still in operation. And time prevents me also from going through the other reasons, like the fact that the gifts are meant to encourage and edify, which we still need in the church today, or the fact that Paul clearly commands us in 1 Corinthians 14 to earnestly desire the gifts. And he never changes his mind or recants that or frames it in a different light. It's a command of God to us to desire the spiritual gifts. So the point of all this is, is the burden of proof truly does rest on the cessationist 
if you believe in a plain reading of the New Testament and if you have any faith that the people who came before us in the Christian church can be trusted at all. I think the gifts are still in operation today. So let's consider perspective three. Let's put that on the screen. There is no such thing as the gift of healing. This distinction is the most important nuance of this morning. Healing is found all through the Gospels and all through the book of Acts, but it's only mentioned, the charisma, the gift of healing, is only mentioned in three texts, and it's all in 1 Corinthians 12, and it's one of the texts that we read this morning. And in all three instances, Paul writes the same words, gifts of healings. I don't know why every modern English translation renders this incorrectly. I do know the NASB has a footnote, and it says at the bottom, healings. But all the other uh, English New Testament translations, the good ones too, render this usually gifts of healing, which sounds like a singular gift. But Paul didn't do this on accident. He didn't slip and add a S. Not really. Of course, he's not writing in English. Ha. But he didn't do this on accident. He is doing this on purpose because all the other nine gifts that are listed in the text this morning that we read are singular. This is the only one where both words, gifts and healings, are plural. So what does that mean? Well, it seems to mean that Paul does not imagine that a person would be gifted one gift of healing that would work every time for every disease. His language here seems to state that there are many different gifts or powers of healing or each occurrence of healing in the church constitutes a specific gift. So that means that we don't believe if someone at one point could heal or they healed someone, that that's a forever permanent gift that they can walk around, take their jacket off, swoop the front row, and everyone is healed. It's clearly not how it works. That's not what Paul is teaching. So we think that the gifts of healings are subject to the sovereign will of God. So there may be a person who heals many people, but not all. There may be another person gifted to heal only one person at one particular time of one particular ailment. So what this really means is, practically, if you're in your community group and someone is sick, you can't say, well, I'm not going to pray for them for healing because I don't have the gift of healing. It's not, it's not what Paul is teaching us. Paul is saying, if you are a spirit-indwelled Christian, at any given time, you pray in faith for the person who is sick, God may use you to heal that person. So we always pray for the sick. We don't wait for the healer to come in. We don't even use that terminology. Anybody who claims to be a de facto anything based on their spiritual gift is off if they always think they always have one gift for whatever. What's clearly taught in Scripture is that the gifts are given sovereignly by God at particular times, and while you may heal that one brother or sister, then you may never heal again for the rest of your life. That's what the Scriptures plainly teach. So, like I said, when someone is sick in your community group, pray for them. God may grant you in that moment the gift of healing for that particular person. Don't believe that, well, I don't have that gift, so I can't pray for them. Anyone who's here and is born again by the power of God has the ability, if the Spirit sovereignly gives it to them, to heal their brothers or sisters. 
So if you're sick this morning, the pastors are going to be up here at the front, and we're going to obey James 5, and we invite you to come up to pray, and we're going to pray in faith that the Lord would heal you this morning. And when we pray for healing, we pray like Daniel did. He said, God, you're able to deliver. We say, God, you are able to heal. God, you will heal. And if you don't, we still won't bow to any other gods. You are our God. That's how we pray for healing. So if you're not a believer and you're here this morning, it's a weird Sunday for you to show up. (laughs) Hear me out. We talk a lot about spiritual gifts. You've heard a lot about doctrine. None of this matters until you get right with God. None of this matters. The gifts are for the family of God. And if you're outside the family of God, this is us and the Spirit plainly inviting you into the family of God because your rebellion is the root of your misery and the feeling that you have that you're missing out on something. You've heard a lot of teaching this morning about the spiritual gifts and doctrine, and I want you to know if you're skeptical, if you're not a believer, through repentance, which is turning away from your sin, and belief, which is trusting in Jesus to save you by his work and his power alone, you can be saved. And then the Spirit will sovereignly give you a gift at any given time to bless this new family that you're a part of. That's the way that this works. So I'm preaching this morning with the aim that we understand clearly the New Testament teaching on the gifts of healings. I want us to have clarity. I also want us to be encouraged that God still sovereignly distributes gifts for his people. And he does that here in this church so that you can bless your family members. That's what he does. But I'm also preaching that you might catch a glimpse of what this church would look like if we don't play around. Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 14. Pastor Ryan said it. I said it. I'm going to repeat it again. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So my question to you is, do you desire the gifts? Do you actually pray for them and ask God to give them to you? My biggest pushback, so I went to Liberty University, the cessationist capital of planet Earth. (laughs) Every single book and class and everything I read thumped me between the eyes with cessationism. I came out of there convinced that we need to like light stakes and put people on them because these people are crazy. Now I'm one of those people. So my pushback really, truly is not theological. It's not theological. My pushback has always been the fact that the world has formed me my entire life to be a naturalist. Someone who is dulled to the supernatural and only trusts the material world. You know how dangerous that is for a Christian? That is the antithesis of our faith, the antithesis. We use words like repentance and salvation, if you've grown up in the church, easily, and we forget that these are supernatural occurrences of God. This is God breaking into the sinful, wicked world and taking a dead heart and making it alive. That's a supernatural occurrence. And so if we are so formed by the world that we are truly doled to the supernatural, the Christian life will be not as rich and not as beautiful as it could be 
if we pray and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And here's the deal. If we pray for them and we do desire them, he will give them to us because our father delights to give us good gifts. He delights to encourage the church and edify the saints. And he does that primarily through each other. Everything I read, everything I consume, everything you do too, trains us to be a naturalist, to be someone who's dulled to the supernatural and only trusts in the material world. And our kids are targeted even more aggressively than we are. And so if we want to be a living, vibrant, spirit-filled church, how are we going to do that if we don't take spiritual warfare seriously, if we don't take the spiritual gift seriously and lean into what God wants to do in his church? Biblically, parents, your kids are not supposed to be like trophies on a shelf, like look at their accomplishments, look at their behavior. The Bible says they're to be like arrows fired from your bow into the world to cause havoc for Satan and his minions. But how are we going to raise our kids and train our kids to do that if we are so dulled to the supernatural, if we are so dulled to what God has for his people? Plainly, we read multiple times Jesus' works, the apostles' works, all of the outpouring of the miraculous throughout church history, and yet we think we're in some different age. We are in the continuation of the book of Acts. For heaven's sake, we're in the Acts 29 network, y'all. I mean, come on. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. That's a little funny wordplay if you don't know it. And so that we, that's what we believe. We are in the continuation of the book of Acts. We're in the church age. We are awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the perfect returns, the gifts will cease. But yet we so often are naturalists. I'm concerned that we are far too comfortable only trusting the material world. I'm concerned that we are too comfortable with our social media addictions that we're okay with the status quo that the world has given us, that we're okay with being complacent, not growing in holiness, that we're okay with not killing the flesh, not killing and dwelling sin. I'm also concerned that we are not earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts. And I want to clue you to this. There's a prayer of Peter and John in Acts 4 that sounds wild. It sounds bizarre to our ears. And I want, I want to read it and see if, as a church, this prayer won't become our prayer. That's what I want. He says, they're in the midst of a prayer. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Can that not be our prayer? One of the marks of a true Spirit-filled church, not, a, not one that just wants signs and wonders for the sake of it, but one who actually experiences the Spirit of God in their midst, is a care and a passion and a desire to preach the word of God boldly. Right doctrine and spirit-filled worship, both. And also, do you see how important this gathering is? 
when we have the right belief about the spiritual gifts, how essential it is to really gather when we know that the people of God here are uniquely empowered to give us a gift from the Spirit. I feel comfort knowing my brothers and sisters here are empowered by God with supernatural gifts to bless me and my family, and I am as well. Do you see how important this gathering is when you have the right view of the spiritual gifts? It's amazing that God ordains most, not all, but most of his blessings to come horizontally through the church, through our brothers and sisters. You're not an isolated Christian just sitting there getting all your blessings vertically. You are made to be in community, this community, a born-again, spirit-filled community where your brothers and sisters are uniquely empowered to bless you and edify you and encourage you and rebuke you and grow you in the faith. So it's tragic when we withdraw from the very people who God uniquely ordained to bless us. Every single member of this church matters deeply because you have a gift from the Spirit for this body. You matter so deeply. Your gift of teaching or prophecy or mercy or healings or giving or evangelism or discerning spirits is for us, this family. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, gosh, probably almost 90 years ago, and it's relevant today. He said, The church is so constituted that every member matters and matters in a very vital way. But I sense that there's a curious tendency today for members of the Christian church to feel and to think that they themselves can do very little. So they tend to look to others to do all that is needed for them. This, of course, is something which is characteristic of the whole of life today. For instance, men and women no longer take exercise and sport. He's Welsh. So if you ever get, well, his weird, his uh, word choices are a little weird. Just bear with me. He's Welsh. Uh, Men and women no longer take exercise in sport as they used to. Instead, people tend to sit in crowds and just watch other people play. And I fear that the tendency is even manifesting itself in the church. More and more, we see evidence of people that they're just sitting back in crowds where one or two people are expected to be doing everything. Now, that, of course, is a complete denial of the New Testament doctrine of the church as the body of Christ, where every single member has responsibility and has a function and matters. I want you to know that you matter so much because it's not a superpowered saint that walks in here and goes around healing people. It is regular, spirit-filled, humble, faithful people like you and I, members of this church, that God pours out the gifts of healings. There's not a special class of Christians that get this. Any of us at any time can be given the gift of healing by the Spirit for that particular occasion. So let's earnestly desire it. Let's earnestly desire it. Can you imagine if we believe, like I said earlier, that we really are in the continuation of the book of Acts? Part of the reason I'm so riled up about all of this is because of last Wednesday's equip with the men. I got pretty amped. I shared that I was quite sick of being so formed by the world. And we talked about what our homes and what this church and what our city would look like if we were really Bible-saturated men. So I think, I think we're clearly at a fork here 
in our four years, we can continue to give the spiritual gifts lip service or we can lean in and desire them and ask the Spirit to give them to us. So if you get the sense that there's something missing, this may be what is missing. I'm not advocating that we all get a plot of land and move there together. I've seen enough documentaries. I know how that ends. Even though robes are cheap and functional, it's not a good, not a good look. Not advocating that. My point in all of this is I'm pushing us. I want to continue to push us to be a real New Testament church. That's the goal. To be like what the church looked like in the book of Acts. To believe that all the things that God did in that time, he does today to continue to pursue Jesus, to continue to deeply care about right doctrine and good theology and the gifts of the Spirit, to care about all of those things. So instead of playing church and prioritizing our weeks away, men, let's actually lead our family here every Sunday morning. Instead of making excuses on community group night, let's actually show up a little tired. And in that, we'll teach our kids what actually matters to us and what actually is vital to the Christian life. Instead of sitting on our phones all night, let's actually engage and pray with the people that God has put in our house. Let's continue, all of us as members, to passionately serve our brothers and sisters and their kids. Let's take serious the commandment to be generous with each other, with the church, with our friends and neighbors and fellow believers. And what would grace look like in a year if we actually believe God could heal and does heal. Like, not like just an intellectual ascent, yes, I'm a continuationist, but we actually pray in faith and believe that in that moment, because of God's character and his love for this person that he's purchased, he or she can be healed. What would this church look like? To expectantly await God as Peter and John prayed to show up in power to stretch out his hand and do things that only God can do. So I want us to continue to be a church that loves truth, that loves right doctrine, and loves the gifts that the Spirit sovereignly gives. I'm going to quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. His book on revival, he says this, What is needed is some mighty demonstration of the power of God, some enactment of the Almighty, that will compel us to pay attention and look and listen. When God acts, he can do more in a minute than man and his organizing can do in 50 years. So my prayer this morning is not a transition so that the band can come up on the stage. (laughs) Let's see this as a genuine time of prayer where we earnestly desire the gifts where we ask God to do something in this family that the people in this neighborhood and this city will want to come and see and hear our message. And what's our message? Christ crucified and risen and reigning. Have people come so that they want to see what is going on with these people. What is God doing amongst this church so that people can hear the gospel and they can respond and repent and believe and we can baptize them and have new brothers and sisters that we will be with for eternity. Pray that with me now. Will you do that? Let's pray. Spirit, we need you. 
we ask you, we, we earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Please give them to your people who are here today. We ask you to make us humble, to not see whatever gift we get as some kind of title that's bestowed to us, but it's a grace and a mercy that's been given to us. Help us to remember that the gifts are for the body, to edify and to encourage, to build up. Lord, we just ask you, we we pray the prayer of Peter and John after they had a terrible interaction with the religious authorities. After they were freed, they sat with the believers and they didn't say, Lord, move us to a new area. But they said, Lord, give us your spirit in such a miraculous way that we are empowered to preach the word with boldness. I pray that we continue to seek good, right doctrine. That we continue to grow in biblical literacy. And I pray, Lord, that we start, if we haven't already started, and if we have started to continue in earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts. We stand here in awe of your gospel, of the good news of what Jesus has done for lost sinners. So help us in this moment respond. We pray all these things in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.